Our sermon text for today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there now. It should be on the screen behind me, and there's also uh, the sermon text is in your, your bulletin as well. Luke, chapter 5. And I'll begin reading in verse 17. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as he, meaning Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who could forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home Glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This is God's word. We are uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings leading up to Easter. And today we come to the account of Jesus healing the, the paralyzed man. And as is always the case when Jesus works a miracle in the Bible, he's not simply showing off. This is not only a naked display of God's power. Jesus, when he performs miracle, also means to teach us certain things about who he is and what he came to do in the world and how we can relate to him. And in the text for today, Jesus, through this miracle, means to teach us about forgiveness. Now, I think it's fair to say, I think it's accurate to say, that while forgiveness is an important subject in every major world religion, whether it's Islam or Hinduism or Judaism or Buddhism, and and while forgiveness is something that is uh, very highly valued in the secular culture around us today, in no system of thought is forgiveness as essential and foundational as it is in Christianity. You can't be a Christian without really understanding what forgiveness is all about. And and in no other system of thought do you see any verses like these. This is Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Forgiveness is absolutely of the essence when it comes to Christianity in a way that's just not true of other religions or systems of thought. And we'll answer three questions this morning. The the, the sermon will be three questions that we'll try to answer when it comes to forgiveness. So the first question we'll answer is, why does Jesus forgive? 
this man's sins. Second, how does Jesus forgive? And then third, how can he forgive? So why does he forgive? How does Jesus forgive? And then third, how can Jesus forgive? So first, why does Jesus forgive? We're told that Jesus is preaching to this crowd of people when suddenly some men bring a paralyzed man to Jesus and they do it in, a, in an unusual way. They can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. So they climb up onto the roof and they let him down through, through the roof. Now, Palestinian roofs were typically flat in the first century. They had an outside staircase leading up to them so you didn't have to go into the house to get to the roof. And the roofs were just made were, were just beams, cross beams, with tiles of thatch set all the way around the roof. And the tiles were really easy to remove if you needed to replace them or repair them. And that's all these guys did. They went up on the roof. They were probably walking on the beams, like you walk on the beams in your attic. And they dug out some of the tiles and they lowered this man on a bed right down through the crowd and laid him at the feet of Jesus. Now you know, I'll be honest, as a preacher, it's tough to, it's tough sometimes to preach with distractions uh, in the room. You know, sometimes we'll have a staff meeting and somebody will say, well, did you hear that noise during the sermon? And most of the time, I'm, I just say, no, I didn't even notice it. I'm just so lost in what I'm trying to do. But if somebody started cutting a hole in the roof and, uh, and laid, a, you know, lowered a man down right here into the orchestra pit, I would be distracted by that. I mean, we'd stop what we were doing. We would just wait until they were finished with whatever they were trying to accomplish. Now, why were these men lowering the man down at Jesus' feet? And the answer, of course, I think, is obvious. Jesus is a miracle worker. He has become a pretty big celebrity in Galilee by this time. And these friends want Jesus to heal the man on the mat so he can walk again. But what does Jesus say? What does he say to the man on the mat? He says at the last part of verse 20, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. Now just imagine the account stopped right there. How do you think the paralyzed man would react to Jesus if, that's, if that was the end of the story? I, I, I think I know what he would say. He would be extremely disappointed and he would say, uh, Jesus, thank you for forgiving my sins, but that's not why I'm here. Can't you see? I can't walk. I've got a much bigger problem in my life than my need for forgiveness of my sins. And Jesus, in healing the man in this way, is saying, no, you don't. No, you don't. Jesus says, I know you suffered for a long time, and we're going to get to that. But your biggest problem is not your physical suffering or your physical limitations. Your biggest problem is your sin. Now, see, I don't, know, I don't know what you walked in here this morning thinking the biggest problem in your life was. Um, but it's not the nasty things that have been done to you. It's not how you've been hurt. Friends, your biggest problem is not that life has not been fair to you. Your biggest problem is not your spouse or your parents or your job or your kids or your singleness or your money. None of those things are your biggest problem. And your, your biggest problem isn't even some kind of horrible medical diagnosis or a spinal cord injury. 
Without a doubt, Jesus is saying your biggest problem is your sin by healing the man this way. I mean, there can be no doubt about that. You were created by holy God to live a life that perfectly reflected his character, and you have not done that, and I have not done that. And because God is perfect, and he wants a perfect universe that reflects his character, he will destroy all sin. Our God is at war with all the things that lead to greed and jealousy and hatred and racism and abuse and envy. He is at war with all those things. And the question we all need to ask ourselves is, how can God go to war against those things without going to war against you? Because the seeds of all those things lie in every one of our hearts. And the answer, of course, is Jesus. The way God can go to war against sin without going to war against us is through the forgiveness that Jesus alone offers us. But, you know, it's, it's hard to feel that need, isn't it? It's hard to feel the need for forgiveness. In some corners of Christianity today, uh, you'll have men and women who, who claim they have certain gifts, and they'll hold what are called healing crusades and I mean, night after night, thousands of people will come to try to get their healing. But just try to put on a forgiveness crusade. I dare you. Take out an ad in the paper and say you're going to hold a forgiveness crusade. Nobody will show up. Why? Because that's not our biggest felt need. We think if we just get our felt needs met, everything will be fine. But it, it doesn't work that way. And I think I can prove it to you. Even if your life isn't, you know, in this dire strait like the man on the mat. And boy, I mean, it's never been easy to have that kind of disability. But 2,000 years ago to have that kind of disability, it was an unimaginably hard way to live. Yet Jesus is saying, that's not his biggest problem. And I, and I know, and what I'm trying to tell you is no matter what you think your biggest problem is, it's not your biggest problem. Your felt needs aren't what you need to get met in order to be happy, and I can prove it to you. My, my guess is that almost everybody in this room has had the experience of getting something at some point in their life they really wanted and they worked hard for. So whether it was some kind of athletic success or whether it was some kind of academic success or whether it was a job you wanted, or whether it was a relationship with somebody you drooled over for years and you finally got this person to go out with you. Hey, all of us have the experience, to some degree, of wanting something really bad and getting it, and, and, and while you're working for it, you're thinking, if I just get this, I'll be happy. And then you get it, and you are happy for about six weeks. Maybe six months. And then you find that this thing that you wanted so badly, so badly, and you thought would solve all your problems, you got it, and it just doesn't excite you like it used to. It just doesn't charge your batteries like it once did. And now you start looking at something else, and you think, well, maybe, maybe if I get this new thing, then I'll be happy. And friends, when you start thinking that way, you're putting yourself on a treadmill you will never get off in this life, ever. Jesus, in healing the paralyzed man this way, is saying, I am going to get to the root of your discontent. 
I don't care how unhappy, I don't care how bad your circumstances are, you can still be happy in horrible circumstances. I have come to deal with your biggest problem, and it is your noisy, restless, unforgiven heart. Your heart that's full of anxiety and rage and fear and pride and jealousy and bitterness because your relationship with God is broken. And until you're healed of that, you will never be at rest. You'll never really walk. I don't care what condition your spinal cord is in. Many of you will know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She has now been a quadriplegic for almost 51 years after diving into some shallow water in the Chesapeake Bay and, and breaking her neck. And one of her favorite hymns is the one that goes, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And at one point she writes this about that hymn. She writes, I cannot tell you how many times I used to sing this as a prayer when I was first injured and in the hospital. This is how the hymn would connect. I would picture that passage in John 5 where the disabled people come to the pool of Bethesda to be healed. I imagine myself among the many that day when Jesus walked by the pool. I would picture the columns and porches. I felt the dry, dusty air. I envisioned Jesus walking among the others, healing them, touching them, and I would plead, Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, don't pass me by. I would see myself on the mat, Jesus approaching, his eyes meeting mine, him sensing my desperation, stepping over others to kneel by me, reaching down, touching my cheek and saying, Yes, daughter, be healed. And my goodness, the power of that image could even cause a muscle spasm back then. I would open my eyes, see my hospital room, and I would strain to rise from my bed, but my legs and my hands never got the message. Back then, it seemed as though Jesus had passed me by. Decades later, there was the chance for me and my husband to visit Israel. And there I was visiting Jerusalem. We turned a cobblestone corner, and oh my goodness, look, Ken, here's the Pool of Bethesda. Here are the ruins of the colonnades and porches. Here are the steps leading down to the water. And sitting there looking over the ruins in my mind's eye, I could picture hundreds of sick and paralyzed people. I turned to Ken and said, oh, sweetheart, you wouldn't believe how many times I used to picture myself here. I scanned the ruins and whispered, and now, after so many, many years, I'm here. I'm here. Tears literally welled in my eyes that day. I made it, I said, resting my arm on the guardrail. And Ken, Jesus didn't pass me by. He didn't overlook me. He did answer my prayer. He said no to a request for healing. And I'm so glad. Because a no answer has purged sin from my life, strengthened my commitment to him, forced me to depend on grace, bound me with other believers, fostered sensitivity, disciplined my mind, stretched my hope. Being in this wheelchair has meant knowing Jesus better and feeling his strength every day. Now, that's the testimony of somebody who has been in a wheelchair for more than 50 years, and she can say way more important than getting your healing is getting your sins forgiven. He did not pass her by. And friends, Jesus will never pass you by. When it comes to the deepest need of your heart. Never do that. That's why Jesus forgives. 
Now, second, how does Jesus forgive? And, and now we'll read all of Luke 5, verse 20. And when he, Jesus, meaning Jesus, saw their faith, he said to the man, said, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, do you see anything unusual about that verse in this passage? Jesus forgives the man's sins before he ever says a word. Before he ever indicates in any, in any verbal way that he wants forgiveness. That's unusual. And I, boy, I hope if you've been coming to Grace Bible Church any amount of time at all, you immediately see what's weird about this forgiveness that this guy gets. I hope you've heard at Grace Bible Church that forgiveness of your sins does not come by praying some kind of formulaic prayer. That forgiveness does not come because you walked an aisle and shook somebody's hand at the end of a service. That forgiveness does not even come through baptism. I hope you know that forgiveness comes one and only one way. Repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. I hope you know that. But this paralyzed man said nothing. Okay, And don't read some words into the Bible that aren't there. Okay, Trust Luke and Mark and Matthew who also have this account in their Gospels enough as authors to just deal with what they actually put in their books. He doesn't say anything. His friends don't say anything. Yet Jesus can look at the man and say, your sins are forgiven. Now, how can Jesus do that? And the answer is, first, look at what the men were doing. They haul this guy. Mark tells us there are four of them. They haul this guy on a mat up on a roof. They dig through this guy's roof. They don't even ask who his insurance carrier is. Okay, They just dig through this guy's roof. They lower this man down in front of Jesus. So Jesus sees that. What's that? That's an act of faith. I mean, why else would the men be doing that unless they trusted in Jesus? So Jesus sees their faith, and then he looks at the man. And just because the man is there, just because the man isn't screaming, don't you dare lower me down in front of Jesus, but he's just quietly submitting to it. Jesus looks at him. And sees that he also has faith in Jesus. He is forgiven because of his faith and his repentance. You know, he wanted to be there. That was all it took for him to be forgiven. Now, so many people have this idea that the God of Christianity is this harsh, exacting, demanding God. And if you don't just if you don't dot all your I's and cross all your T's, you're never going to get anywhere with Jesus. You're never going to get anywhere with the God of the Bible because he wants everything to be done just so. Well, friends, Jesus' healing of the paralytic makes that kind of thinking total nonsense. Jesus proves that God is looking for any chance to forgive you. Even when you don't say the right thing, even when you don't say Anything at all. Jesus can see into your heart. He can see that your heart is ready to receive him. Maybe before you even consciously realize it yourself. So ready is he to forgive you. Jesus can see that you have faith. Even when your faith isn't 100%. And you're kind of reluctant about it. Jesus can see into your heart. And see that you're ready to be forgiven. I love the testimony of C.S. Lewis. Um, in his by the time he's in his late 30s, he's been an atheist his entire life. 
He's a professor at Magdalen College, Oxford University, when slowly but surely he becomes convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He did not want to become a Christian, but he could not help it. And this is what he wrote about the night he became a Christian. He said, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert to Christianity in all England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. See, the paralytic tells us that faith that is reluctant, faith that is weak, faith that is inarticulate in Jesus Christ is still saving faith. Jesus is more ready to forgive you than you are to be forgiven. Matthew 17, 20 says, uh, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Okay, that's not much faith. That's a tiny little bit amount of faith. You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible, impossible for you. And you say, how can that be? How, much, how can that much faith do anything? And here's the answer. It is not the quality of your faith that saves you, nor is it the quantity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. So think about it like this. Uh, you and your friends rent a boat to go fishing out on the Gulf of Mexico, and you and your friends are idiots. Uh, you don't pack any life preservers. Uh, you don't pay attention to the weather. You don't know what you're doing. You're just going to go deep sea fishing because you want to do it. And you go out 20, 30 miles, and you start fishing, and all of a sudden this fierce thunderstorm rolls up, and... The waves, the wind begins to whip the waves until, oh my goodness, your boat capsizes. And you're not a strong swimmer. And so you know you're about to drown. Until at the last second, you see a little piece of driftwood come by. And, you know, if you had to lay odds on it, you would say, there's no way this driftwood is going to hold me up long enough for the Coast Guard to get here. If you put numbers to it, you would say, there's a 10% chance this driftwood is going to hold me up long enough to survive. But you don't have a choice. So you grab onto the driftwood and you float through the storm. And then the storm subsides and the Coast Guard finds you and you're rescued. So you had 10% faith in the driftwood. And then you get rescued by the Coast Guard. When you get on the Coast Guard cutter, are you just 10% saved? No. You're 100% saved. Why? Because it is not the quality of your faith, nor is it the quantity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. And friends, when your faith is in Jesus, even if it's just 1% faith, but you're just hoping in the right direction, 
you'll find that Jesus is more ready to forgive you and save you than you are to be saved. You know, some of you may be thinking, my faith in Jesus is so weak. I, I constantly sin. I constantly mess up. I constantly go back to these same idols over and over again. You know, if I could total it all up, I have 5% faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I want him to save me. I just don't trust him enough. Well, friends, if that's you, you're still saved. You're still saved. It is the object of your faith that saves you. God is more ready to forgive than you are to come to him and ask for forgiveness. This is Psalm 103, verses 8 through 13, where we read, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. All right, let me give you a, a couple of applications, all right? So first, say, say you are someone this morning and you want to be a Christian, but you're, you're just not sure you have enough faith. You, you can't make yourself go all the way and really commit to Jesus Christ. You've never done that. All right, here's my counsel to you. Stop trying so hard. And remember that faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no man may boast. And the gift of God in verse 8 refers back both to the grace and the faith that connects you to the grace. Faith is a gift. So don't sit there week after week. If you can't quite pull the trigger, don't sit there and try to like manufacture faith or work up some experience so now you know that you believe. Instead, just go to Jesus and say, I want to trust you completely and I just can't do that. Please, Jesus, help me to trust you. And if you will say that, you'll find that Jesus has been after you for years and you just didn't realize it. Okay? Nobody, nobody goes to Jesus like that without Jesus first coming after them. And then second, maybe you've got a loved one who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe it's a sibling or a friend or a child. And your heart is breaking because they don't know the Lord Jesus. And you want more than anything else for them to believe. What can you do about it? The best thing you can do about it is live out your faith. This paralyzed man, the only reason he was brought to Jesus is because his friends were willing to live out their faith and take him to Jesus. And friends, when you start living out your faith, you're going to find you're bringing all kinds of people to Jesus. You're going to, you're going to find you're bringing people to Jesus in ways you never imagined. Especially when they're close to you. Especially when they're close to you. I remember hearing uh, several years ago a woman speak. She grew up in a very prominent Christian family. Her dad was a, a, very, uh, a pastor of a large, prominent church. Her mother was a leader in their denomination's women's ministry. And so this, this woman had, 
had all the advantages of a Christian upbringing. I mean, her parents had her in church every Sunday. Her parents had her in a Christian school. Her parents taught her the catechism. I mean, that was, I mean she never remembered a time when she, those things weren't parts of her lives. But she said, she said, by far what influenced her most when it came to being a Christian was not any of those things as good as they were. She said what, what brought her to faith in Christ was seeing her parents genuinely worship on Sunday mornings and seeing her parents hold hands and pray over matters during the week when nobody else was around and, and seeing how hungry her parents were to read the Bible for themselves. I mean, I mean, do you want to bring your kids to Jesus? Then way more important than making sure they read their Bible is, you, is they seeing how hungry you are to read yours. You want to bring your kids to Jesus? Way more important than telling your kids they need to serve others and build up character is demonstrating your character by serving others yourself. Now, third, final point, how can Jesus forgive? And now we'll read verses 21 to 23. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? And then Jesus sets out the question which has bedeviled Bible commentators and scholars for centuries. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Now, what do you think it is? Don't shout it out. But what do you think? It, which is easier? And for a long time I read this and I thought, well, it's got to be easier to say your sins are forgiven because that can't be ver- verified. You know, if you tell somebody who's paralyzed, rise, take up your mat and walk, and they don't do it, then you're revealed for being a fraud. So it, it's got to be easier because you can't verify forgiveness. We don't have a scanner that can look into the human heart and tell whether or not somebody's been forgiven. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's operating on a different level than we are. For Jesus, making the lame to walk is nothing. You know, the Bible actually tells us that it's through Jesus Christ that the heavens and the earth were created. It's through Jesus Christ that we are, in our existence, in our physical existence, we are sustained. Jesus made us, the Bible says, so he knows how to heal us. Jesus knows how to reconnect neural pathways. Jesus knows how to heal spinal columns. Jesus knows how to strengthen atrophied legs. So somebody can, somebody who's been paralyzed for decades can get up and walk. For, for Jesus, that's like a kid stacking blocks. Okay, it's nothing. But what is difficult for Jesus, and this is the point he's trying to make, what is difficult for Jesus is to forgive sins. And it's not because Jesus doesn't want our sins to be forgiven, it's because if God is going to forgive sins, he has to deal with one of his immutable characteristics, his unchangeable characteristics, his justice. God loves this universe. He loves this creation. He hates sin fiercely because of what it does to his creation and to us the pinnacle of his creation, and he is determined to destroy it. And just as we would not want criminals 
in our society, breaking the law without there being any kind of consequences, God is determined that sin will face the righteous consequences. So Jesus, in asking which is easier, had in his mind what he was going to have to do to forgive the man's sins. Jesus had in his mind the cross. On the cross, Jesus would satisfy the justice of God towards sinners. On the cross, Jesus Christ would bear the full wrath of God towards sin. Jesus going through total abandonment by God, excruciating physical agony on the cross, and unimaginable spiritual agony on the cross. Literally, Jesus going through hell on earth in order to forgive our sins. So which is easier? Oh my goodness, friends, it's always easier for Jesus to heal than to forgive. Do you, by the way, do you want to be like Jesus? Friends, you're never more like Jesus than when you forgive. When you, when you want to angrily confront the person who has wronged you and just shred them with your words and you don't do it, that hurts. That's painful. But that's what it means to forgive. That's practicing forgiveness. And that's just a small taste of what Jesus had to endure on the cross. When someone wrongs you and you want to go to everybody in your circle and run that person down to all of them just to get it off your chest, just to vent, you know, to rant, and you don't do it. Or most importantly, when you want to just dwell on what was done to you and you want to meditate on it, you just want to play the tapes over and over in your mind how this person wronged you, but you don't do it. It hurts. It hurts to forgive but you're never more like Jesus when you go through the pain of forgiveness. Because even for us, in a lot of instances, it's easier to heal than to forgive. But when you've been forgiven, you'll find that over time you've become more like Jesus than you ever thought possible. And my, uh, my favorite example of this is Edmund Pevensey from the Chronicles of Narnia. In the second book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we're introduced to Edmund, and he is a nasty kid. Um, he is a spoiled, rotten brat. He's just awful. He doesn't like anybody, and nobody likes him, and he especially likes to torment his little sister Lucy. But when he goes to the wardrobe and into Narnia, he's the first one to meet the White Witch. And the White Witch, at first, she's kind to him, and she gives Edmund his favorite treat, you know, Turkish delight, and promises Edmund that if he will just bring his big brother and his two sisters to Narnia to meet her, he, she will make him king over Narnia. And so Edmund's excited because he feels like he's put upon by his family all the time and he just can't wait to see his family bow down before him. But of course, the witch is lying. She doesn't, she's not going to make him king of Narnia. She just wants all four of them there so she can kill them. So Edmund tries to bring his siblings to meet the white witch, but he fails to do so. He goes by himself, and the witch is furious at him. She ties his hands. She orders a dwarf to whip him and forces him to walk wherever she wants him to go. Now, if that's, by the way, if that's not a good picture of sin and addiction, 
promising to make you a king, but instead turning you into a slave. I don't know what is. But then something happens to Edmund. While he's being marched by the queen and whipped by this dwarf, he starts to repent. And we read in the book that for the first time in his life, Edmund began to feel sorry for somebody other than himself. But then soon after that, he's rescued, and he meets Aslan, and Aslan the lion forgives him. But the only way Aslan can rescue Edmund from the white witch once and for all is by sacrificing himself on the stone table. And the witch, you know, she thinks she's one, but the witch did not, you know, the witch did not know. There's a deeper magic before the dawn of time that the white witch does not know about. And so when a, when a perfect sacrifice offers his life in the place of a traitor, death begins working backward in Narnia. And so Aslan is resurrected and everybody is saved. So that's just book two. But what I love reading is after book two, in the rest of the series, Edmund is a transformed young man. Nobody is kinder the rest of the series than Edmund. No one is braver the rest of the series than Edmund. No one is more ready to see the good in people and forgive others than Edmund. And no one protects Lucy like Edmund. Why? Because he has experienced forgiveness. And when that happens to you, when you go to Jesus and you experience that kind of forgiveness, it will transform you. It will make you more like him. Luke 5, 25 and 26 says, And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, almost certainly the people were amazed because a paralyzed man got up and walked. And, of course, that would be an amazing sight. But, friends, you've got to know nothing is more amazing than seeing a sinner forgiven. Jesus may not meet your greatest felt need today, but if you come to him, he will meet your greatest need. And I, I mean, and if you really want to walk, if you really want to walk, you've got to go to Jesus and get your forgiveness. If you want to walk like Isaiah 40 talks about, th- those who trust in the Lord will run, not walk. They will not grow faint then you go to Jesus and be forgiven because he's always ready to give you the kind of joy and freedom that can only come from being forgiven. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the forgiveness you have freely made available to us in Jesus. And I pray that for all of us, we, we would lay down at the foot of the cross whatever it is we think our deepest need is. And instead come to you for what we really need, reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Father, heal us of the deepest wounds we have, our sins that keep us from you, and then transform us by the love that we we see in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of sins. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, thank you for coming.